Well, open your copy of God's Word to the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11 this morning, or at least we'll start. And we're returning to this vital part of Paul's letter where he is both correcting a misunderstanding about grace, and he's also explaining the very foundation of Christian living. If you don't grasp what Paul is teaching here in in Romans chapter 6, you're either going to turn the grace of God into a license to sin, like many people have done, or you'll, you'll not grasp what has spiritually happened to you at, at salvation. There are things in this passage that God says happened to you that you didn't feel, that you wouldn't even know took place if God's Word had not told you. If God's Word had not told you that you were in Adam you would have never felt that. If God's Word told you that you were not placed in union with Jesus Christ at your conversion, you you would have never known that. You didn't feel any baptism happening. You felt the burden of sin lifted. You felt that you were free and happy in the Lord. But, But the theological significance that Paul is talking about here is something that God declares to you that you now understand by... By faith. And if you don't understand that, Paul says that you'll remain unnecessarily trapped by by sin's power. And today in this new section, as I said, Paul's going to start turning the car across this this, this bridge towards Christian living. He's going to do that by reminding us of what we must know in order to walk in new life. Things that we must know before he commands us what we we must do. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but Christianity is a thinking religion. It requires you to use your mind, unlike most of the counterfeits that you see on TV, which call you to lose your mind. And just as a, a reminder, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's, that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. So, Whenever you're under the control of the Holy Spirit, you're not in less control of yourself. You're in more control of your faculties. You're not flailing around on the ground and foaming at the, the mouth. You, you're in your right mind, and you're, you're obeying what Scripture actually, actually says. Some religions are based on mysticism or experiences or vision or dreams, but the gospel requires you to know some things. The Bible says things like in John 20, 31 that we looked at a few weeks ago. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So God's truth is written down so you can read it, so you can understand it, so you can believe it, and then by believing it, then you get its benefits. You have life. I mean, even sanctification or growth that comes after salvation requires that you you use your, your, your mind, a passage that you know very well in Romans 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove, that you may test, that you may understand and, and work out what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and, and perfect. I mean, you don't disengage your brain to know what pleases God. You, you reorient your thinking to the Bible, and then you use it to discern truth from error. Now, now without the Bible, our human thinking is a mess. 
And without the Spirit of God, we have no power to, to obey what we, what we now understand. But, but we need the Scriptures to help us think rightly. Or to say it another way, the Bible rightly interprets re- reality. And using the mush between your ears is required. It's, it's a principle that's a common theme in, in, in Scripture. We're not to be ignorant, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Or, or 1 John 2.1, I write these things that you may not sin. There's some connection between what you know and understand and, and then not sinning. I mean, even the chief commandment declares... This principle, we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and, and strength. In fact, the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God, and it's impossible to have faith without engaging your, your, your mind. I mean, Romans 4.21, I think, gives one of the best descriptions of faith operating, faith operating in the Bible. We know it's defined as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But what does faith, what does that kind of faith look like when it's exercised? I think this verse is a, is a great description. It's talking about Abraham being fully assured that what God promised, what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as, as righteousness. I mean, Abraham had to understand what was promised and who promised it in order to trust in it. And once he did, he was fully convinced and assured that God would, would fulfill it. And, and that's faith. It trusts facts, facts and promises that are backed up by God. And I could go on, but, but you get the picture. The Bible is a book of objective truths and promises and realities, not just spiritual sincerities or subjective opinions. And so it should not surprise us that in Romans 6, we find Paul saying there are some vital things that we must know if we hope to live the new life that we have in, in Christ. Rick Holland, in his introduction to this section, said to understand the gospel, it's helpful to, to look at it from three different angles. He, he said, actually, if you're going to explain the gospel to somebody, if you, when you're witnessing, this is a helpful paradigm to, to actually use. There, there are three parts or three realms you need to consider. First of all, there are the facts of the gospel. These are the historical events and the chronological details that, that make up the gospel. Remember, the gospel is good news, and news is based on facts, or at least it should be, right? These would be things like the historicity of Jesus or his work. I mean, there was a real man named Jesus. He was God. There was a moment in time when he was crucified on a Roman cross he was literally buried. He rose from the dead on the third day. I mean, those are the facts of the gospel. If those facts are not true, if they're not real, then you don't have any gospel. Again, it's good news. I mean, it's nonsensical to think that there's some spiritual meaning to the Bible if the facts of the Bible are not, are not accurate or, or that they, they don't present uh, things that, that, that matter or, or aren't real. So that's the facts. In addition to the facts, though, there's theology that's connected with, with those facts. I mean, these are not just historical events. They, they actually have theology embedded within them. Rick explained there, are, there were other men crucified on a Roman cross, but they had no effect whatsoever on your, on your salvation or how God sees you. But the death of Jesus did. 
Why? Because there's a theological component to the fact of his death. There's this supernatural reality beyond the fact that he died physically, and, and those events mean something to, to God. There were, there were things going on beyond the physical realm, beyond, beyond those facts. These aren't just earthly events. The, there are eternal reverberations, he said, happening because of them. There, there's theology behind the, the events. So facts and theology, and, and thirdly, you have to respond to them. I mean, you must hear the gospel, which has specific content, which has supernatural realities, and then you must respond to it. You, you personally, must believe it. And, and when you do, then its benefits can, can be yours. I mean, in the gospel, we're called to align our lives with these events and this theology. We repent toward God, and we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work that took place on the, on the cross. And Dr. Allen said that all three of those things are operating in this passage of, of Romans before us. Paul talks about the facts. Paul talks about their theology. And then Paul is going to talk about our response to them in verses 12 through 15, whenever we get there. In this passage, there's the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. There's the theology of our union with that, with that death and resurrection and how God sees them, and now there's our, our response, which begins with thinking and ends with doing. We, we are to consider or reckon ourselves the, this way. We are to then align our life with these, these events and the theology that's, that's part of it, regardless of what you feel. Um, it's knowing these things that is the beginning foundation for Christian living, which is what we're going to see us today. Now, let me remind you how this whole thing goes together since it's been a while, three weeks actually, since we've been in this passage. And you will probably recall, if you've been with us, that it begins in verse 1, there, with a question about grace and sin. What shall we say then? Are we, to are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And then the answer that Paul gives is in verses 2 through 14, and it has four parts. The first part is in verse 2. Paul says we can't continue in sin because we died in Christ. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? I mean, dead people can't be reigned over by sin. Its power has been broken off. That's the first part of his answer. The second part is what we looked at last time, verses 3 through 5. That explains that this is true because of our union with, with Christ. We, we were united with Christ at conversion or, or baptism. Verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Talking about this, we're, we're united with these theological realities of Christ's death, even though it happened 2,000 years ago. We are, we're spiritually united with the realities of His resurrection. And then, verses 6 through 11, this is the third part of his answer, which we'll look at today, explains this even further and calls us to stand firm in this knowledge. Knowing these things is the foundation for this call to Christian living that he's about to, about to get. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Um, look at verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead. And then in verse 11. Even so. Consider yourselves, calculate, reckon, add it up. Use your mind. Use these realities uh, in, your, in, in your thinking. And then in verses 12 through 13, uh, 13, 
14, I should say, Paul gives the imperative commands to now walk, think, and now, and now do. He draws his conclusion in verse 11. Even so, I mean, based on all of this explanation, everything I've just got done saying, even so, consider yourselves. That's an understanding. To be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 14, he shows us what, what the application of that looks like. Don't let sin reign in in so that you obey its lust, in verse 12. Don't go on presenting the members of, of your body to sin. The end of verse 13. But present them to God as instruments of, of righteousness. That's how it lays out. So today, Paul's going to focus on what we must know before he brings us to these, to these commands. And, and what we must know is actually found in, in two certainties. There are two certainties that... We must know in order to successfully live a new life in Christ, which the Bible says we have. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have a new life. First of all, we must know our old self was, was crucified. That's in verses 6 and 7. That's what we'll cover today. And secondly, we must know we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's in verses 8 through, through 11. Two facts with theology behind them, and then God calls us to respond to those things. But we must believe them first if they're going to impact our, our, our living. Let's look at this, this first one. It's found in verses 6 and, and 7. It's only two verses, but it's packed with a, with a lot of detail. There's the fact of our death that's declared. The purpose of our death is explained the result of our death is described, and then the explanation of that result is reinforced. Look, look at the four parts of this verse. Very easy to see. Look, if you would, at verse 6. He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. There's the fact. The fact of our death is declared. And then the second part of that is the purpose of our death is, is, is explained. In order that, our body of sin might be done away with. That's part two. Here's part three so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's the result. And then verse 7, the explanation. It's reinforced. For he who has died is freed from, from sin. Now, there's a couple questions that should jump right out at you before you start. I mean, what does this old man mean that Paul's talking about? And what does he mean by this body of sin done away with? And we'll answer those two questions as we, we work through this passage. But he begins with some things that we should, would, should know. Paul begins by stating a fact. The fact is that our old self or our old man was crucified, and then he explains the significance uh, of that. This phrase, with him, is actually supplied in, in, in the English, meaning it's, meaning it's not part of the, the original. In the original, there's just the, the, the verb, was crucified, because Paul wants to emphasize the, the event and what's happening here. And, of course, we know that we were crucified in Christ because of the, the previous verses. But the apostle places the emphasis here on the fact, not on the, the union which is the difference between verses 3 through 5 and, and now 6 through 11. I told you when we started this passage, you're probably going to feel somewhere in here like, all right, Paul, I get it. We, we, we died and we rose. I mean, couldn't you say in one or two verses what it takes you 11 here? And the answer is he could have, 
but he wants to elaborate the, the, the argument. He wants you to see it from two primary angles. He wants you to see it from the angle of this union with Christ, and now he wants you to see it this angle of the, of the event of, of his death and, and his, his resurrection. I mean, earlier he focused on our baptism and our union with, with Christ in verses 3 through 5, and, and now he changes the focus slightly by pointing to this theological crucifixion of our old man. And knowing both of these things, both of these facts is a key for the Christian life going forward. We must know that we're in union with, with, with Christ. And we must know what happened because of that, that union. Our, our old man was then, was then crucified. But, but, but now notice, Paul does not say we must crucify our old man as, this, as if this is a command. Verse 6 again, knowing this, what do we know? that our old self or old man was crucified with him. And that's something that's true for every single Christian. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones noted that people who read a command into this passage spend their lives trying to do something that God has said he's already done. And it can lead to all types of, of error. I mean, people try to kill their old man or get rid of their their old man. And they do that with things like deprivations or, or sufferings or restrictions, hoping that that will conquer the flesh's power, which, which they feel quite strongly, by the way, because their conscience is, is enlightened by, by the law or by the truth. They know what the Bible says or what God commands, and so they know that what they're doing, they're not supposed to do, and so yet they keep doing it. And so they'll, they'll use things like sufferings to, to try to kill the power of, of the flesh. He said it was this very concept in ancient times that led, led men to hide in caves and on top of mountains. In fact, this is the theological error that actually gave us monasteries, which are the places where you withdraw from the world and all of its influences so you can focus only on, on God. I don't know if you saw it or not, but there was a there was actually a, a prime example of this in the Philippines uh, just last weekend on, on Easter, something that they started doing again that they were forbidden for several years because of, because of COVID. People were actually crucifying themselves, crucifying themselves to imitate the sufferings of, of Jesus. They literally hung themselves on a cross and drove nails into their hands to reenact the sufferings of of Christ, and then while they were up there, then they would pray, thinking that this somehow brought them into into heightened relationship with with God. One 62-year-old man named Reuben Anaj completed his 34th time doing this every Easter, except for the time whenever he was forbidden by COVID. The article said after his brief crucifixion which is just a ridiculous statement, by the way. There's not a brief crucifixion. I mean, crucifixion is death. You, you can't crucify yourself and not die. But it says, after his brief crucifixion, Anash says he prayed for the eradication of the COVID-19 virus and the end of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has contributed to gas and food prices soaring worldwide. Now, those are noble goals, but I don't think God hurt him any better from that cross than he would have from the ground. 
or, or for, for you, uh, from you for that matter. I mean, these types of things are nothing new. I mean, Martin Luther beat himself daily in order to mortify his flesh. Uh, flagellation, which is the, the, the whipping of oneself, is actually what helped spread the bubonic plague, which is called the Black Death. Catholic priests went from town to town thinking this was the judgment of God in Europe, and they would walk through the town whipping themselves, imitating the sufferings of Christ. And whenever they did, they slung their blood everywhere. And a lot of that blood was infected. And so the plague actually spread. And you say, why tell me all of, all of that? I mean, do you think I'm in danger of crucifying myself? No, I, I don't. But you, you could fall to some less bloody version of those things. Like taste not, touch not, handle not. Like self-pity or self-atonement whenever, whenever you sin. Instead of focusing your energy on repenting and then resting in Christ's advocacy on, on your behalf. I mean, this is the struggle of the Galatians, which is something that you could, you could fall to. The Galatians who began in the spirit, but, but then thought that they were somehow perfected in the arm of the, of the flesh. And Paul says that we can do the same thing. We don't know and believe what this passage says. I mean, when we don't realize what we are, that we are a Christian in union with Christ and, and what has happened to us, that, that the man we were in Adam has died, then we can go on thinking that, that we are the old man and we put forth a lot of fleshly effort to do things, to try to kill what has already been, been killed. And Paul says, no, no, that, that's not where the power is. The power is not in something that we do. It's knowing something that was done. Something that took place on the cross. This is an objective fact that he's giving us here. This is a, a doctrinal point that Paul's making. And again, it's not something that you feel or even something that you experience. You did not feel or experience this, this union with Christ or this death to, to, to Adam. But the Bible says this happened to you, and you must, you must know it. Paul says the man or woman that we were in, in Adam is gone, and he'll explain what he means by that. All that we were in him, our old humanity has ceased, it, it's ended, and, and we're now a new person in, in Christ. And of course, Paul's going to go on and, and command us to do some things in light of, of, of those verses. This is not just positive thinking. We must strive and labor in, in the fight, but nowhere in Scripture, does it tell you to get rid of your, your old man? Because you can't. And also because of in Christ, your, your old man or person is gone. What you and I were called to do or are called to do is to cease to live as if we were still in Adam. And the only way to do that, Paul says, is first to realize... What happened to you? What took place? What's the theological reality uh, of that? You're now a Christian. And he says the old man is, is dead. Now, when I first came to Christ, I, I used to sing a song for the congregation of my home church. And just to ease your mind, I'm not planning on doing that this morning. Um, but, but whenever I would sing this song, I, I would actually look at, at Tracy whenever I when I would sing it, sing it to her. Um, 
And the, the, the song was titled, The Old Man is Dead. And the song is about a, about a man who once lived a wicked life, and when he stops, some of, his, some of his friends don't understand why. They don't see him in the places that he used to be. And, and so this song is this man explaining to them why he's not doing the things that he used to do now that he's, he's become a Christian. And the chorus of the song says, The man you see before you may look a lot the same. I may wear the same clothes and have the same old name. But you're looking on the outside... If you could see inside instead, you could see, or you would see a brand new man. Because the old man is dead. And that was true for me. And that is the reality that you're called to believe and receive by faith, if you are a Christian here this morning. But notice next that, that Paul actually explains the purpose for our old self being crucified with, with Christ. Look at verse 6. Here's the fact, knowing this, you need to know this, knowing this, you should already know this, that our old self was crucified with him. And then here's the second point, in order that our body of sin might be, might be done away with. He says in order, it, it, it's in order, this death, this theological death, is in order that the body ruled by sin might, might be done away with. It. And it's a purpose clause. It's the purpose of the, of the death. There are numerous interpretations for what Paul means by the body of sin. It's not a phrase that he uses quite, quite often. I mean, does this mean that, that sin's power only reigns in the body? Is this a figure of speech? Don't get wrapped up around that axle. Regardless, Paul is clearly saying the body that was once ruled by sin loses its power over us when we died in Jesus Christ. And that's the purpose for this being crucified in him. It was to take away its power, the power that, that the body once had, that sin once had. Now notice Paul does not say the presence of sin has died or is gone. He says the old man has. And he means the person that we, we were in Adam, which is what he got done talking about in, in, in chapter 5. And that helps us, it helps us interpret what he means here by this body of sin. I mean, Paul doesn't mean that Christians cannot sin now, but that sin cannot be the ruling principle in a Christian's life. A Christian does not have to subject themselves to the power of sin. It's not that strong for a Christian anymore. It's still there, but it doesn't have the power, the control over you because you're no longer in Adam. You're now in Christ. And you remember back in verse 5, he, he talked about the death and resurrection of Christ. When, when the resurrection happened, the new age that's coming where sin won't be at all and, and there is no sin, no temptation, no power, when, when Christ rose from the dead back here, that new age invaded this present world and it is unfolding, moving toward, toward that. And those of us who are baptized into Christ are, are no longer under that old age. We're no longer ruled by the dominion of sin. We have resurrection power within us. And yet Tom Schreiner says, nevertheless, we, we live between... We live in the gap between the inauguration of this power and then the, the confirmation of the new age, when it will be full. 
And so sin endures in the life of a believer between these two points. But, but Paul says here, the tyranny has been broken through Christ's death on your behalf. God did that. So our body of sin was, was done away with. What does done away with mean? It, it literally means to render something inoperative, invalid, to sap its potency. It, it means to make something ineffective. It means to remove its power of control. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have power to tempt. But, but what, what, what at one point would, would hold you, where you're, you're, you're almost compelled to obey it, is, is gone. This whole passage is about a change that took place which renders an old power powerless. And then a call to, to learn how to live in, in light of that. There's a death that leads to a deadening and the end result is, you'll see next, you're, you're no longer slaves. So there's a result of that death. It's not that you're no longer capable of sinning, but that you're no longer under compulsion to sin. I mean, even the word old that Paul chooses to use here is not the word for chronology. It means something old, worn out, like, like, a, like a garment. It's no longer useful. MacArthur said it, it means it's, it's fit only for the garbage bins. What you wear in Adam is no longer useful to you. And Paul now says it's been destroyed, it's been done away with, it's been rendered inoperative. MacArthur again said, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, my old eye is dead and no longer exists. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, the new life of a Christian is not a made-over old life but a divinely bestowed life that is Christ's very own, placed in you. And the old self here that Paul's talking about is the unregenerate person that, that I was. It's the man who was associated with, with Adam, the man who was under the bondage of, of sin. And that man was, was done away with at, at conversion. And the reason that, that God did it was so that the power could be taken away. So, no crucifixion, no literal fact of a crucifixion, then this doesn't have any meaning whatsoever. No theological uh, union with that crucifixion. And then there's no emptying of, of sin's power. Let me, let me uh, try to illustrate this, tell you why getting this right matters for, for living, living now. I mean, if you don't get this right, it greatly affects your sanctification and how you try to live out the Christian life, what, what you do and what, what, what you don't do, um, how you battle. I mean, there are actually two views, which I, I think I mentioned about three, three sermons ago. There are actually two views about your nature after salvation. Um, one is that you have two natures. This view says that there is a, a fleshly nature, a sin nature, nature of Adam, and, and now, after you get saved, God adds a new nature. So, but these two kind of cohabitate together. They operate beside one another. They kind of do battle with, within you. And, and obviously, the one that you nurse, uh, the one that you, you give in to, is, is the one that, that rules. The danger of, of, of that view, and not taking the view that Paul has here, is that can lead to the same error that's happening in the Corinthian church 
where, where the Christians there concluded that, that the only thing that mattered was, was not what happened as a result of this old Adam nature or in the body, but what actually happened in the new nature. This is the one that actually matters. This one doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what happens in my body. And so in 1 Corinthians 6.13, they were saying things like food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. I mean, the Corinthians there were, were falling to sexual immorality. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 6. And their conclusion was it's just biology. It's just my old nature. Um, it's that old nature operating. It's not the new one. It's just a physical thing, like, like eating. And I mean, even God created it. The food is for stomach, and the stomach is for food. The, the body is for sex, and so that's the way that, that God made it. In fact, God made the body to want these things. And so, in one sense, I can't help it. It's just natural. But on the other sense, this is the only nature that matters. I mean, there's nothing spiritual going on anyway. I mean, this is not the real me that's doing this. I mean, this body's going to perish. That was their argument. Argument. I'm a new spiritual man in Christ, and God has forgiven that part of me. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, but God will do away with both of them, the stomach and the food. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. I mean, he's saying you can't divide yourself up in, 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 in old and in, in new, in, in biology and in, in spirituality. You are one person. And you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. It's not that like these, it's only the spiritual things that matter, such as your thoughts and intentions. I mean, that will lead to more sin. And this error also keeps you bound and stunted in growth. If you don't understand that you've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus and this is gone, even though you're, you're now battling with this new nature to, 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 against the fall, and the hangover that, that's there, it, it will keep you stunted. I mean, think of it this way. If you conclude that there's an old nature that's still there, that, that you can't do anything about, then there's no hope of, of overcoming sins that are connected to it, besetting sins or, or deep parts of, deep issues of sanctification. You, you end up acting like the Alcoholics Anonymous of Christianity. I mean, once a drunk, always a drunk. Um, once a liar, always a liar. Once a, a fornicator, always a, a fornicator. I mean, I was just born with this proclivity. I was just born with this addiction, and so I can't do anything about it. Therefore, I won't fight. And besides, God's forgiven it. You see how that can stunt your growth? Keep you from moving towards sanctification. Um, and even more alarming, the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's versus the, the biblical understanding that I have this appetite, but its power does not control me because my old man died in, in Christ, and so I'm going to fight against it. And I can make progress, but, but one day God will give me complete victory over it in glorification. What Paul declares here is that you have been made a new creation. You're a new man. And... The old man is dead. But this new man, in this new man, you still deal with the world around you. You still deal with the effects of the fall, but you're operating completely different than you did before you came to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're sitting here going, boy, i got more questions about that, that that's okay. Paul's going to give you an entire chapter 
in Romans 7. That, that's coming. And he's going to go into more detail of what it's like to live with new holy dispositions, yet still be in bodies and in a world that fights against those things. I mean, that's Romans 7. What I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do. I mean, he's going to go into that in detail. The process is not yet complete. It's probably a good way to summarize it. It will be in heaven. But the power and the penalty of sin for the Christian has been broken. But the weakness of the flesh and the ability to sin remains. Therefore, we have to do these commands. We have to obey these commands that are there. But you can't obey these commands that are coming if you don't reckon or consider yourselves dead to sin. If you don't know some things, not just the facts of it, but understand what's going on behind it, that's where he starts in order to find victory in this battle. So right now, Paul calls us to know and believe some things. First of all, there is the fact of our death. Verse 6a, our man of Adam was, was crucified. Next, he gives the purpose of that, of that death. It was so that power could be rendered inoperative. And then number three, there's the result of this power being taken away, the result of our death. That was so sin's tyranny could be broken. Look, if you would, at, at verse 6. He says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, there's the fact, in order that our body of sin might be, might be nullified, there's the purpose, and here's the result, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. I mean, Paul completes the thought here. All of these facts... All this theology is so that we would not be captives to, to sin. We would not be slaves in shackles. That's the result. We are not slaves in, in shackles. And believing that, you, you, you can be freed. The result of our old man's death is so this power can be removed so we would not be, be slaves. I mean, meaning without Christ's crucifixion again, you would still be a slave to sin. And you might be a slave to sin this morning. If you look at your life and you find you are aware that what you're doing is wrong or parts of it is wrong, and you don't want to do that, but you keep doing that over and over, and you just can't stop, that's an evidence that you're still bound in, in the old man. And conversion can free you. You see how these facts and this theology come together here. The, the result of this body of sin losing its power is that we're no longer slaves to sin. and God removes the, the shackles. And now we are free not to sin. Whereas before we were slaves to sin. We had no freedom. But the question that, that you obviously ask, from a practical standpoint, is, is Brian, if this is true, then why do I sin? <laughs> I mean, I think I'm a believer. I went through that list of things that gave evidence of conversion. And, and I do acknowledge sin, and I do want to know what God's Word says, and I do love the brethren, the, the church, and, and I, I want to know God. So why do I keep sinning? And the answer is there's nothing about this death that says sin is not possible. There's nothing about what Paul says here that sin is, is not possible. You can fall to temptation. 
you can listen to the voice that, that, of the old master. You can take your, you know, your, your hands and you can place them back in the shackles. But Paul's point is you don't have to. You need to turn the key around and insert it the other way. I mean, this death just means you're no longer under the, the, the slavish rule of sin. You now have a new capacity that you didn't before. I mean, what happens at conversion is you're partially restored to a pre-fall state. Meaning, the inability to please God has been removed. I mean, after the fall, we are unable to please God. And the capability to do right is, is restored. I mean, prior to sin, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were not affected by sin. They didn't have human inability or depravity. They had capability to, to please God. I mean, they were truly free, unlike us. I mean, we throw the term free will around, but, but only a Christian can actually fall into that category now. And even then, it's different from the garden because you still live in a fallen world with the curse around you, the world, the flesh, and, and the devil. But there's no person today that's truly uninfluenced by, by sin, who's free from sin, or Paul says is free from the theological reality that if you're outside of Christ, you're a slave to sin. You're in bondage to sin. You can't break free. But at conversion, through the work of regeneration, by the Spirit, the bondage to sin is broken, and the inability to obey God has been taken away. You now have the capability to choose right and to please God. as where before you didn't want to. Now you have a new want to and a, and a new ability, which, by the way, is why you must be born again. You must be regenerated. You can't just start trying to live the, the Christian life. You can't climb up to God on your own because of where you start at. You, you start in Adam, under condemnation, as a slave to, to sin, with its power reigning in your life. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we sing, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, an enlivening ray, through the gospel... God can cause a new birth to happen in you. And that new birth changes everything, which is what Paul is describing. What happens in the new birth? Well, what happens is you're placed in union with Christ. And the power of sin is, is removed that was there before. And you're no longer a slave. You now have the capability. But that doesn't mean that you'll always do right. That's why I say it's partially restored. The completion of that work will take place when you get to heaven, when all sin will be removed around you and in you, and God will complete what it began whenever you, you're converted. Right now, you work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling because God's the one who's at work in you. And the one who began that work will continue it. He'll perform it until the day that you see Christ Jesus. So how do you live between the, the now and the, and the then? Well, Paul says it starts by knowing something. He says, you remind yourself of these things, and then you choose to align your life with these truths. And you now have the capacity to do it where, where you didn't, didn't before. Then number seven, or verse seven, I should say, then provides the ground for this truth. Here, here's the, the final point. Here's the explanation for this, for this result. I mean, 
how can he say there's a there's this result of of, of death that frees us? How's that possible? Well, look at verse seven. He says, "For he who has died is freed from sin." Again, this is all theology. These are theological realities. You don't feel any of this. You don't read this and go, "Oh, wow, yeah, zap!" And now I have. He's he's telling you. You have to understand these things because this is where you'll find the engine operating to do it. Notice he begins with the little word for. So he's, ex- he's explaining what he just said. Why are you no longer a slave of sin? Why has sin lost its power over you now that you have died in Christ? It's because whoever has died is freed from his master. It's probably the, the best way to understand that. It's just a statement. You understand this concept. If you were a servant or a slave before, when the servant dies, he, the master has no more, no more say over him. And at the cross, we came under God's condemnation and died, and that death freed us. This is the same thing that, that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us or constrains us. Having concluded this, notice there's the mind, having concluded this, what, what do you want us to c- conclude, Paul? That one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. There's a death and there's a living. Now there's a new way to live they who, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I mean, Jesus was the substitute sacrifice. He died in our place. But then we died before God in Him, and we died to the power of sin in Him. And in that death, who we were in Adam, our old self was put to an end, and now it no longer has the same power over us. Here's another passage that says this very same thing. It's actually a summary if I was going to explain this, you might think of what you're reading here in Romans 6 as like the commentary. There's a lot here. This is why we're taking a long time to go through it. But if I was going to explain this, I would go to another verse, which Paul also wrote, which really summarizes all of it. And it was actually a verse that, um, the very first one I memorized. And it wasn't because I was smart. In fact, I was sitting in, my, in a home Bible study, and the pastor was going around the room. I'd only been a believer for a few months. The pastor was going around the room, and he's asking everybody, um, what's your favorite verse? And I was counting, and I'm about number three in, in line, and I'm going, I, don't, I know like John 3.16. I don't have a favorite verse. I don't really know what the Bible says. So... But somehow I remembered either uh, what was in Sunday school class or what I'd heard on the radio. I don't remember, but I remember Galatians 2.20. And so I looked it up, and that's what I answered. And it was truthful, because at that moment, it was my favorite verse. It was the only one that kept me from looking really bad. But then I memorized that verse. And Paul says, in summary... Of Romans 6, 2-14, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. That is the way you should live now as a Christian. That's where the victory over sin's hangover is, is located. The life that you now live in the flesh, you're still in this body, you died in Christ, he now lives in you, and the life you now live, you live by faith, facts and theology, in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. And it starts with knowing some facts. Facts about what God has done in Christ. And then God says you have to understand those theological realities of those facts. Again, you don't feel it. You don't feel your union with Christ. You don't feel your death in Adam. You feel other things, other emotions. Burden of sin lifted, whatever it might be. And then he's going to call us to respond to those facts and, and truths. You consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God, and then you live a certain way, which we'll cover whenever we, we, we get there. But right now, some things to know. So let's pray. Father, I just come before you right now, and I, I begin by by praying for maybe a Christian here this morning that's gotten some of this mixed up. They're aware that sin is sinful. They don't want to do it. And yet they're trying to do battle in the arm of their flesh. They're, they're not hanging themselves on a cross on Easter, but they're spending all of their efforts in these external things, these restrictions and, and sufferings, trying to self-atone, making their, themselves feel better rather than repenting, using all of their energy toward taking their thoughts captive and their energy toward putting off and putting on, their energy there toward this self-atonement rather than what you teach here, I pray that you would help them understand where it begins. Just reorient themselves this morning. Lord, I pray for others who, who may, may not understand this at all. I mean, they, they may be maybe not Christians. They may be bound by, by sin. They're, they're aware for some reason that they, that they know it's bad. Maybe consequences, maybe what they were taught as a child, maybe just what they know with the law written on their heart and and they can't find the ability to overcome it. And they'll never overcome it outside of Christ. So I pray today you would help them see that it begins by knowing these facts and believing the theological realities that you say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall, shall be saved because there, there was a man who was God named Jesus who gave himself... His life is a ransom for many, that he was buried, and then he rose from the dead, and he offers salvation full and free to all who will turn to him and believe. I pray that for them today. And we love you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.